There are plenty of people who say that Shakespeare's words really sing. Well, now, in New York, they actually do. Now, could I drink hot blood? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. Starting this month, the Metropolitan Opera in New York is premiering an opera based on Shakespeare's Hamlet. The writers have cut down the story considerably. They've also made a number of unique choices. For one, this Hamlet is a conflation of all the known versions of Shakespeare's play, so you're never quite sure which lines you'll hear. You're also never sure who's going to say what. Also, the opera tends to focus to a larger-than-normal extent on Ophelia. The libretto for this Hamlet was written by Matthew Jocelyn, and the score was written by Brett Dean. Brett and Matthew joined us recently from New York and London to talk about their process, their choices, and why it was that they chose to tackle Shakespeare in the first place. We call this podcast, Sing Thee to Thy Rest. Brett Dean and Matthew Jocelyn are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I am convinced that you guys could write an opera about anything. And that's because, Brett, you wrote one about an advertising executive in hell. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. Yeah, guilty as charged. So what possessed you then to turn to Shakespeare? Hmm. Well, that's a very complicated question because when the idea of a Hamlet opera was first put to me, it wasn't my idea, it was suggested by a Danish tenor um, who, you know, saw himself as the Danish prince. Um, but, Wait, he, uh, he, he my... wanted to play Hamlet, so he said, why don't you... Oh, yeah, I mean, he's blonde and an ex-dancer and and I'm sure he'd love to sing this role one of these days and I hope he he gets the chance um but he he suggested because I was searching for the right story for uh, an opera commission that had come in from Glyndebourne and he said you know there still isn't a a really good Hamlet opera why don't you try Hamlet and my initial response was Oh, Lord, that's a big one. And I was quite daunted. Daunted as in scared. You were... Yeah. Yeah. But it was my wife, Heather, that was captivated. She was absolutely smitten with the idea. And she's a painter. And she launched into a cycle of vivid oil paintings from reading the text and taking certain single lines as the starting point for a whole kind of visual exploration. So it did take me quite a while to come around to it and then got into the idea. We found every possible DVD version we could find. We were living in Berlin at the time and there was a very compelling production at the Schaubühne, which returned regularly. So we were able to get to see that. Oh, Um, I want to ask you about that. But first, I want to bring Matthew into the conversation. Uh, Matthew Brett said he was daunted and didn't even think he maybe wanted to to do this. Was that your uh, feeling, too, when when this first came up? And what is what is so daunting about 
about Shakespeare or Hamlet? I was obviously intimidated because it is the apex of English literature. But I found it more exciting than daunting very quickly. sense of, okay, this is a challenge, and as a um, colonized Canadian, can I take this, can I take this on <laughs> with my, with this, yeah. with this camarade colonized Australian? <laughs> well, well, wait, let me ask you both this then, because you said, here was this Danish tenor, and he said, do Hamlet. And I was thinking, well, what if he'd been, I don't know, an English tenor, and he'd said, I always wanted to play Richard III. You should write an opera based on Richard III. <laughs> would you have been so daunted or would you have done that? I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the great thing which I then came to recognise with Hamlet as opposed to Richard III, let's say, is that Hamlet is much more in the vernacular and, and in people's imagination and appreciation. Um, but I think alongside, say, Romeo and Juliet, it, it sort of has the popular ethos or mythology attached to it like hardly anything else. It's this work of imagination that just continues to fascinate every generation that comes along. That's good. Very good. So Matthew, where did you start with Brett? I mean, did you start with, he, he went to a lot of shows, it sounds like you watched a lot of DVDs, different versions of Hamlet. Um, what did you guys talk about in your first meeting, and where did you start with the text? We talked about the fact that any Hamlet edition that one was able to read at the time, and any production anybody has ever seen, is essentially a conflation, uh, either a reduction of the second quarto or a reduction of the second quarto, but a few lines from the from the first folio, or the first folio with a few things taken out or a few things added. I mean, directors and editors are always playing with the text, rarely integrating the first quarto into that, but it was clear that there were three texts that had been published either in or very closely after, after Shakespeare's life, and then the first quarto, which remains for many a mystery as to what its actually origin is. So we said, we've got material, but there is no such thing as Hamlet. So if we're going to do an opera based on Hamlet, that's all it can be. It can be a, it can be a juggling with material and a reworking of material. And then very luckily, Brett had a, another commission to do a string quartet with a soprano singer and wanted to work on the Ophelia songs. And that was my first sort of exploration as a librettist, was to say, rather than doing the Ophelia songs or the, the ditties that she says in her mad scene, 
I want to compose something that is a medley of all of the words that Ophelia hears said about her by others or that are said to her or sworn at her or thrown at her uh, by her father Polonius, by her brother Laertes, by Hamlet himself, by Gertrude, by, by Claudius. All of them have things to say to her or about her. And it was almost as though these words are the stones that she carries around her neck and take her to the bottom of the river when she falls into it because she's unable to dislodge them from her brain. That ended up being a door into how much we could explore character through the borrowing of text, as much as through their own text, as through the, the borrowing of text and displacement of text. Oh, that's really fascinating. And it sounds as if just that discovery coming so early, that that kind of freed you to create and to edit the play in the way that you do because you take lines from one person and from one character and you put them in another character's mouth or you you really do you you show a great sense of freedom with the text others would call that irreverence um but (laughs) yes it uh, (laughs) but that's what we felt that there was nothing sacred and and uh and it i think for both of us we had we did feel a, a great sense of freedom and um absolute loyalty at the same time. Oh, fascinating. You know, I read a review uh, that pointed out that setting all 4,000 lines from all the different versions of Hamlet to music would have made your opera as long as the ring cycle, which (laughs) (laughs) which I would have sat through. (laughs) Well, um, I don't know how many others would have sat through it, but <laughs> but, yeah. but but why don't you tell us about tell me about the, this process for deciding what to keep and what to cut? Because you both said in an interview that during this first meeting that you had, you separately wrote down the six most important parts of the play that had to be included in your opera. So, what was on on your lists of these non-negotiable well, elements or plot points? Uh, I might just go back one step before that, because on that same first day, we also read through the entire text. And that took five hours of spoken text. And so one could do the maths and and see that that was going to mean, you know, probably about 10 hours of music. So it gave us an idea (laughs) of the... I'm picturing you both there for five hours reading to each other. And, and my with wife, Brett's wife, with Heather. Yeah, as well. my wife was, Heather yeah. was uh, was part of it, and and uh, so we just oh you know, my God, shared the lines devoted. around the table. Uh-huh. And well, she was in a right. In she's a, doing a, the painting, a working and, phase as yeah. well. So it was incredibly helpful for her and inspiring. But um, so it gave us an idea of the magnitude of reduction that we had to enter into, and hence then um, we followed that with this suggestion of Matthews of of writing down the six most important things and then a second set of six. Um, For me, quite apparent, uh, it being an opera, I felt that soliloquies had to feature in some way because they're kind of the spoken theatre 
equivalent of, of arias in a way. But then certainly from a dramatic point of view, there were these archetypal moments that I felt for a dramatic opera had to be part of it. The first appearance of the ghost being prominent amongst them. And I was actually wondering, Matthew, whether you still had the sheets of paper that we wrote down our sets of six on. I actually do. All right. I I don't have them with me here in the studio, but I just before getting on the plane, I said, I want to take that booklet with me. And so I I brought it along. I love that. You should frame (laughs) them. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. What were the biggest disagreements? Let me ask you that. I don't think there was, there, there was, at least at this phase, there were no disagreements, but there were things that, for example, Brett's example of the soliloquies I had not included. Hmm. Uh, we both agreed on Ophelia's madness. We both agreed on the trajectory of the ghost and muted revenge. Um, the play in the play, the theater in the hmm. theater, I think, came up probably in, for me in the top six and for, for Brett in the second six or vice versa. Um, but they were, it was very easy to work our way through these. The interesting one was that I did not have soliloquies anywhere. And that's, again, the moment where the penny dropped that this is the most important thing. It was number one on Brett's list. This is the most important thing when he thinks of Hamlet. So we have to begin this opera with an aria. Not to be. Not to be. And then came the, well, how do we actually start it? Well, we're starting it at Hamlet's father's graveside, and obviously we have to begin with, or not to be. To die, to sleep, is that all I to sleep, to dream. There it goes. To there are also nine, is it nine Hamlet soliloquies? Um, right, you couldn't have them all. You know, so, you know, we had to, we had yeah. to choose judiciously. And of course, then we took a quite unconventional approach to the famous, most famous soliloquy. Um, but uh, yes, by, by choosing text from, from the first quarter. Yes, and let me ask you about that, uh, because we talked to so many actors uh, on this program, and uh, almost all of them say you can audibly hear the whole audience take this huge um, inhalation right before you mm. do to be or not to be. Mm. To, you know, for all of the big soliloquies, you hear everyone just holding their breath. And you know mm. that everyone's waiting for it all throughout the play. So I wondered, when it, you start with to be, uh, or you start with a nod, I guess, 
to to be right at the beginning of the opera. Were you trying to kind of subvert or, or do an end run around that, having your audience wait for the big lines right away? I think to a certain extent, what we were trying to do was, first of all, make a great narrative. And the preoccupation is always what are we doing that's going to be the most singable or that's going to be the most interesting for Brett to set to music. So those are considerations that go alongside the other considerations. And the beginning with Or Not To Be was offering the audience the code. You're coming to see Hamlet. If you know Hamlet already, you're given the instructions or the guide sheet which says things are going to be out of order. Things may or may not be in the mouth of the person who said them in the text that you've read or that you've seen performed before. This is the, the, the alphabet through which to read this production right off the top. Oh, that's so smart. That, so you and so you completely upturn expectations, or that so we the upturn expectations, or we offer the the audience to have different expectations, and then the or not to be because it is a theme that crosses that it reappears three or four times in the opera before we finally hear somebody say to be or not to be. I there's the point. Um, <laughs> that beautiful poetic. <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful poetic line, yeah. but. Even that, even within the narrative, it comes, we've placed it where it is placed in the first quarto so that it comes earlier than people would expect it for those who know the play. We don't want audiences to be trying to outguess us. We want audiences to be following the story. Um, the other not unimportant component being, of course, the music itself. So in all of the discussions we were having right from the outset about how much text can we actually keep. Always in the back of my mind was the fact that for me also, I've always been uh, fascinated as an orchestral musician by the orchestra as chief protagonist in, in any opera. And having played in productions of things like Berg's Wozzeck and Strauss's Elektra, uh, as a member of the Berlin Philharmonic, I was keenly aware of the muscle and heft and dramatic surge that comes from the pit. So that was the balancing act we were we were making the whole time. Yeah, and you use sound in some really novel ways in this opera. You you have a kind of a semi-chorus in the pit where you don't yeah. see them as, as an audience member, and you also have these satellite groups of percussionists that are performing in high boxes on either side of the theater. Um, what's the motivation for those choices? Um, the music needed space in order to resound, and, and the, I guess the intention was to make the entire theatre a kind of resonating chamber a bit like being inside Hamlet's head and that there was a kind of reflection through some of these also very unusual sounds like squeezing of plastic bottles or hitting on trash metal. Um, do you mean those? Right from, do you mean those really cheap plastic bottles? The one that like, the, will the, drive the you cheap, insane when, yeah, <laughs> when you crunch them? 
the cheaper the better, actually. They, they, <laughs> yes. I've got the, one here. Would you like an example? Yeah, oh, let's have a quick <laughs> listen. Engineer yeah. will throw you out of the... Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I've always sort of played around with different possible percussion sounds, largely also because a percussion section can take the orchestra out of the orchestra. That is, it can. it's the quickest way to break down that otherwise very 19th century um, standard orchestral sound that we know and love from, you know, operas of the past and, and many film soundtracks. But it, it sort of adds a different dimension to what an orchestra is capable of. So you, that's fascinating that you, you, you were sonically illustrating how interior Hamlet is and you were getting us inside Hamlet, I guess inside Ophelia's mind too. Uh, because it De- seems definitely. that yeah, yeah, it seems that your opera tracks of more the story of the family dynamics of this of this play, rather than picking up on other themes. Yeah, well, I mean that was also one of our first discussions was that we wanted to concentrate on the the rooms of Elsinore, as it were. I want to pick up on something you were talking about earlier, Brett, which is that you you saw this particular staging of Hamlet in Berlin that was really inspiring. Um, I think it was Lars Eidner's at the Schaubühne. What was what yeah. was so intriguing about that for you? Well, one thing that, and this was quite early on in my getting to know Hamlet, and one thing that I found fascinating was that the German translation, um, it was greatly reduced. It was about a two-hour show. It was only six actors covering all the roles. It had this fascinating soundtrack. And then it was also very, very funny. So Lars Eidinger, who was the the Hamlet and and spent most of the evening with this unbelievably bizarre fat suit, um, (laughs) was vamping. He was playing with the audience. He was constantly sort of breaking the fourth wall and... Yet he he brought people in, and the f- fact that it was so funny and so uh, witty and f- you know fast witted as well made it all the sadder as it as it got to its you know denouement. That's that's um, absolutely true, Matthew. Just did the the humor and the this this concept or this idea that Brett just said that, that Hamlet is a funny play and the funnier it is, the, the sadder it is. Did that resonate with you? And and what lines do you find the funniest besides the obvious, you know, comic interludes like the grave digging scene? Coincidentally, when in Breton and my very first conversation, we brought up that very same question. Both of us, I said, it's really important and especially important in an opera that there be ready access to humor. Why is it especially important? Can you that imagine it be funny sitting for through three opera? hours of <laughs> without Brett having Dean. a single laugh? Seriously, of Brett Dean's music. <laughs> of Brett Dean's music without a, a couple of giggles. I mean, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why maybe there are some people who are put off opera. They don't understand that. It, it I think very much so, and 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 because. I mean, interestingly enough, humor is the hardest thing to pull off, and there are very, very, very few operas of the you know the past 
three or four decades that really stress humor. There are a certain number, but it's very one can be. It's very tempting to go into places of of lament and and places of anguish and places of depression. And Hamlet himself is a comedian, and Hamlet's closest friends are the actors, the people who he entrusts to bring out the truth of a situation are actors, and actors are not just tragedians. Actors are also people who have ready access to, to comedy and farce. Structurally, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are obviously comic characters, and they're, they're perverse and pernicious characters, but they're also comic characters. And so there were all kinds of places where that became invitations for some form of mirth, you might have already covered this, but I think I want to delineate it a little bit more because we're, we're more familiar talking about theater on this uh, podcast than about opera. And in, in live theater, I know it's a collaborative endeavor and, and characterizations are formed in rehearsals between uh, among the actors and also with the director's input. But how does that work in an opera? How do you how do you understand your roles in creating and and delineating character? And I'll I'll start with you, Matthew. It's a really important question because there are so many layers and phases to the work. We were lucky in that Brett and I did a lot of intense talking about this project together, but Neil Armfield also joined us on reg- on a number of occasions. And Neil had a had a familiarity with the text because he directed a very famous production in in Australia, and um, so he he had that familiarity. I had the familiarity of having been Patrice Chéreau's assistant in France when he first directed Hamlet with Gérard um, Desartes. And so we brought some of that baggage with us, but we were also very curious about about how to rework it together. So it started, you know, these three-way conversations happen in a big way. Then there's the choice of text, and the choice of text, for the most part, um, was my job and the sculpting of it and the rearranging of it. But always that text is an invitation for music, and music is the principal characterization. Where I play with that is I would often offer repetitions of things or texts that I thought could be used as musical leitmotifs and so would become thematic drivers, musical thematic drivers for characterizations and places where you can do something in opera which you can't do in theatre which is to have superimposed voices.
And, you know, sometimes that can be a duet with people saying very different things or people saying the same thing or people singing slight variations on things. That's been very much also a part of the, the joy of working with Matthew is his understanding and appreciation of not only possible opportunities for ensembles, for example, through repetitions in, in for example, that marvellous moment of uh, Tis the Very Ecstasy of Love, but it also, um, you know, helped me to, well, just hear music and get into the rhythm of this extraordinary text. And, and I think Matthew's very attuned to rhythm, and whilst his own musical experience got him as far as trombone in a in a brass band he what I could, he, do, you want, do you want a little example there no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean it's obvious that he's also gravitated towards directing opera himself and and you know just has this has this flair for it and the singers in this production are just getting the text out there so clearly is is a real joy and yeah so that played a big part of how not only then the rhythms but also the the pitches started there were there were days there where on on the good days at least where i felt that the piece was writing itself there was so there was so much suggestion in the text in its rhythm in its sense of pitch in its emotion too and so you know this piece for me has been a bit of a watershed moment in terms of gauging the emotional temperature of each and every character of each and every line that we've chosen to use and that helped sort of dictate in many ways how the music would unfold hmm. well the Met, I mean, it's hard to top that, but do you have plans for any other Shakespeare operas ad adaptations? I mean, Lear, anyone? <laughs> well, I mean, Lear is a particular case in point in that there is a very, very marvelous and often performed Lear uh, by Arabat Raiman, and actually a piece that I found especially inspiring when I was. Uh, in the early stages of turning to Shakespeare myself, and I saw a, a memorable performance of it in Hamburg. But um, so that that sort of takes Lear for me off the table to some extent. I mean, we have um, Matthew and I have talked about that as a possibility, and I know that Matthew's especially fond of Romeo, well, and Juliet too, of course. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Um, Matthew, is that, for is the that moment, where you're uh, headed, Romeo and Juliet? For, for the moment, we're, I think the, 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 one of the, the big other takeaways from this experience was, if uh, I don't mean to put words into your mouth, Brett, but was the discovery of how delightful and chewy it is to work with text of the elegance of Shakespeare's language. And, uh, and so the fact of having, of working with other texts that are of a sophisticated and maybe slightly archaic or even totally archaic language, but where the, the shape of the words and the, the chewiness of the words and the meatiness of the words is beyond current just 
um, spoken language or contemporary language, and and there's something inherently, it's an in, it's an inherent invitation to music that. I was less sure of when we began work on this offer, and I think Brett, you probably were as well. And for mm-hmm. both of us, was a huge discovery, which you got to explore far more, of course, because you because you were the one composing. Well, I can't wait to hear uh, your future opera, The Canterbury Tales. Or <laughs> keep going, keep yeah. going, keep guessing, keep guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it is so great to talk with both of you, and I really do wish you all the best for your run at the Met in New York. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you very much. Brett Dean is the composer, and Matthew Jocelyn is the librettist for Hamlet, an opera premiering at the Metropolitan Opera and running from May 13th until June 9th, 2022. If you can't get to New York to see the production. The Saturday, June 4th performance of Hamlet will be transmitted live to movie theaters around the world via the Met's Live in HD series. You can also hear it over the Toll Brothers Metropolitan Opera International Radio Network. Brett Dean and Matthew Jocelyn were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Sing Thee to Thy Rest, was produced under the supervision of Garland Scott. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical assistance from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about The Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For The Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.